You're listening to Pop Culture Detective Audio Files. In each episode, we investigate the social and political messages embedded in popular entertainment. I'm your host, Jonathan McIntosh, and today we'll be examining the latest movie based on a theme park ride at Disneyland. I'm, of course, talking about the new adventure film Jungle Cruise, starring Emily Blunt and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. My name is Dr. Lily Houghton. My brother and I are looking for passage up river. What's out there in the jungle? It's not a fun vacation. Well, I'm not here for a vacation. Legend has it that there is a tree that possesses unparalleled healing power. It will change medicine forever. And you need someone to help you find it. Here we go. Before we begin, I just want to quickly say that you don't have to necessarily have seen The Jungle Cruise in order to get something out of this conversation because many of the issues we'll be discussing do have relevance to other pieces of media. Now, most of the rides at Disney theme parks are based on movies, but The Jungle Cruise isn't the first time that Disney has attempted to flip the script and make a blockbuster film out of a pre-existing theme park attraction. The most successful was, of course, the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, which was directly inspired by the ride of the same name, which opened in 1967. As of today, the five Pirates movies have grossed $4.5 billion globally. But Disney's other attempts at making movies based on rides have all pretty much flopped. Those include Tomorrowland in 2015, starring George Clooney, a version of The Haunted Mansion in 2003, which was a vehicle for Eddie Murphy. There was a live-action movie based on the Country Bears Jamboree in 2002, a Mission to Mars movie in 2000, and a TV movie based on Tower of Terror back in 1997, starring Steve Gutenberg. While all of those movies bombed, The Jungle Cruise has already been a success, successful enough that Disney has greenlit a sequel. On one level, Disney is trying to reignite interest in an old, dated theme park attraction. And on another level, they are trying to copy the box office success of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. It's not a coincidence that both of these franchises draw heavily on colonial fantasies about Western adventurers exploring strange, exotic places. From this point on, your Adventureland ride will be exactly the same as if you were here in person. Welcome aboard the Jungle Cruise. I'll be your skipper and guide down the rivers of adventure. You know, we always turn and take a last good look at the dock and wave goodbye because uh, we may never see it again. And while this new Jungle Cruise movie attempts to sidestep some of the ride's racist history, it still doubles down on other exotification tropes and really attempts to have it both ways. So here to discuss the Jungle Cruise are two of our favorite guest detectives, Felicia Lopez and Carl Williams. Felicia Lopez is an assistant professor at the University of California Merced in the Department of Literatures, Languages, and Cultures. She is currently teaching a class called Latinx, Chicanx, and Indigenous Representations. Thank you. It's great to be here. Carl Williams is an assistant professor of clinical law at Cornell Law School. He teaches and supervises students working on legal projects and cases supporting struggles for racial justice, sovereignty, and liberation. Hey, thanks. Good to be here with (laughs) y'all. So I want to, you know, this is a movie that is based on a ride. So I want to start by talking about the ride a little bit um, and and the history of that ride. Um, Now, one thing about the Jungle Cruise is that it was one of the original attractions, like way back when the park first opened in 1955. And it was inspired very directly by a movie called The African Queen, uh, starring Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. In The African Queen, I just you know, rewatched African Queen because you made me do it, John. You made me do <laughs> I'm, that. I'm, I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry. And, um, I'm... You, yes, you should be because the first scene literally has Spears in it. Um, and and <laughs> him, Humphrey Bogart throwing a cigar to a bunch of, you know, black Africans and them being so wild and excited about the cigar that like a dozen people get in a like prolonged fight to just get a puff of the cigar. From the thrilling pages of world-renowned author C.S. Forrester's story and filmed in the jungles and at the headwaters of Africa, the dark continent, in all the magnificence of color by Technicolor comes the most exciting adventure ever screened. So we start off with a, with a ride that is that has colonial elements to it, right? It's sort of this white adventurism. The world is your playground. I have been on the Jungle Cruise, I think, once when I was little uh, at Disney World in, in Orlando. Uh, but Felicia, I know, has been on the Jungle Cruise many more times than that. Uh, so she is our resident expert on the ride. And so I thought maybe she could start off by talking a little bit about, about the ride and, and, and what it's like. Uh, yeah, absolutely. As someone who grew up in Southern California uh, and had parents who worked for Disney, um, Disneyland has been a part of my life <laughs> for as long as I can remember. And so it was one of the rides that I did go on quite regularly as a child. The ride itself is, uh, is kind of an anomaly now in the park. So a lot of the rides now are either roller coaster style or they're um, based on um, children's movies. Now we have California Adventure. We have a lot of different things that are highly commercialized. Uh, and then we have the Jungle Cruise. Um, it is slow. It, it seems like a, a ride that doesn't lend itself to a movie. Like I was really surprised when I saw this movie was coming out because <laughs> it seems like the last ride that you would want to make a movie about. Uh, it's just not a very popular ride. Uh, you you wait in a line, uh, and then you get into this boat with maybe about um, fifteen other people. There's an actual human being who is who is uh, skippering the boat. Who is the skipper on the boat? And they proceed to tell a bunch of corny jokes, and usually the same jokes every single time. They might change it up a few times, uh, and so the ride takes you through the rivers of Asia and then somehow you're then also in Latin America and then you're also in Africa. Uh, and so and so just so people understand this is like um <laughs> it's like a boat that's on like a track in the water. Right. And then there's a bunch of animatronic animals and figures. We are now entering Headhunter Country. And just beyond is a native village. I'll try to get us as close as possible. Watch those bushes on the right. They sometimes ambush us there. There's a war party. These tribesmen grow to a height of seven feet or more, and they have one aim in life, and that is to get <laughs> ahead. Up until recently, it's the ride has included representations of indigenous people. Um, in the case of the of Disneyland in Southern California, we have uh, Trader Sam at the end, who is the <clears throat> head salesman in the jungle, um, which basically means that he sells heads. Yeah, and, he's like an animatronic figure, or he was, and then he he's holding right, and he holds up to two of these shrunken heads. Uh, and you know, phenotypically, this is a, he looks uh, like a black, perhaps African man, uh, holding up these two shrunken heads. Uh, and the joke is that he'll trade you two of his heads for one of yours. It's it's got these racist tropes 
throughout. I'm surprised that Disney decided that the Jungle Cruise, you know, is the ride that they want to try to turn into a mega franchise with mega stars. I mean, essentially, this is an advertisement. This whole movie is an advertisement for Disneyland and Disney World, right? They want to sort of double dip. They want the blockbuster franchise that makes a lot of money in the, in the theaters and, and on streaming. And then they also want it to act as an advertisement because the theme parks are really where Disney makes uh, you know, the, the bulk of their money, or at least you know, pre-pandemic, they made the bulk of their money. Okay. John, can I just jump in on one thing there? Because I think there's a third thing that, that, yeah, that you, yeah. you didn't mention. And I think it's, so they want, why don't you go to the movie? And create a blockbuster franchise, and they have you know Fast and Furious, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Jungle Cruise, eight you know series of movies, and they want you to to go to go on the ride. I think they also want you to come to the movie because they're building on a memory, right? They're saying like people because I I, I you know watched a, a video of people talking about it, you know when the ride was first built, and they and they were saying the numbers of people who wrote it in a day were in the, in the thousands. Right. So if you think that it's been a ride for, you know, 50, more than 50 years. And I think that's that's one of the things that they're they're playing on in this. Right. Because there's this collective knowledge. Yeah. I mean, with, yeah, I mean, th- there's a there's a deep seated uh, cultural nostalgia now in the United States, especially. But I think globally as well around around this ride, which they are absolutely yeah trying to play on that nostalgia. And the other thing is, of course, merchandise is that a big part of Disney's uh, you know, corporate empire is merchandise. And if they can create more merchandise from this ride and, you know, it's in right. this movie. And that ties into the organization of Disneyland itself, because on a lot of, uh, a lot of the rides, once you exit, you exit into a store where you buy merchandise related to the ride or related to the movie that the ride was based on or so on. Um, I, I'd like to talk about how the ride has changed just before this movie came out. Now the movie was delayed for uh, two years because of the pandemic, but just before the movie was released, Disney revamped the ride, and they made some pretty significant changes to that experience, <laughs> with an eye for uh, you know in their PR language, you know, diversity and inclusion and sensitivity, uh, which is really Disney code for trying to make it a little bit less overtly racist. Disney Parks today announced some important changes to its popular Jungle Cruise attraction. The ride featuring boat skippers telling fun puns about exotic animals will now have some new features and storylines at both Disneyland and Disney World. And they are doing away with the images of indigenous peoples that had some criticized uh, as insensitive. Essentially, they have removed all of the indigenous people animatronics uh, with the tribal masks and the spears and all that. They're all gone. They removed Trader Sam. Who is no longer at the, at the end there with those two shrunken heads. So they have uh, made an attempt to try to turn the racism down <laughs> from 11. Although it's weird because this is like 50 years after people were like, hey, this is not okay. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they still have the character of Trader Sam in the, the larger myth of Disneyland because there are two tiki bars where he is the proprietor of those establishments within the the lore of those of those bars and they have made some very small changes to those bars as well so they used to be able to up until July you used to be able to order a, a shrunken zombie head drink and it would come in a in a like a customized mug that you could take home and it was a shrunken head mug and it would you know and they've changed it now so it's all exactly the same except it's just called the zombie and so you know these tropes still exist, and these characters still exist within Disneyland, and they're still profiting off of that. But they've they've tried to dial it down, 
And I think that is important to talk about because in a lot of ways, they try to have it both ways, right? They want the nostalgia. They want to play on, on these sort of old colonial myths about white adventurers, but they also want to be seen as progressive. And then the movie, uh, Emily Blunt's character is doing a different kind of colonialism. It's all under the guise of science and medicine and saving, uh, saving people. Um, so I wonder if Felicia wanted to, wanted to jump in about that. When you have uh, people coming in and taking uh, traditional lifeways away, there are a lot of dangers that go along with that. And that's a historical problem and has been going on since, for as long as colonization. And so we can see the pharmaceutical industries are uh, known to be spending a lot of time and money and energy investigating indigenous remedies and uh, trying to find indigenous medicines that they can market. And so this is something that's been going on for a long time and in a very harmful way for indigenous communities. These are um, their natural resources and they're being exploited without any sort of uh, benefit to their communities. Uh, a lot of them just want you to leave them alone and stop taking their stuff. Uh, and so then we can see how this is uh, truly a, a major problem. Right, because the, the core of the film is that Emily Blunt's character is is going into the heart of the Amazon. And she is her motivation is that she's trying to find a, a magical you know, uh, tree that has a magical petal that will cure anything. I think that's the that's the thing, and so she's gonna she's gonna make medicine out of it. Mm-hmm. She's gonna bring it back to London or wherever, mm-hmm. and they're gonna make medicine out of it, and it's gonna save lives. And everyone knows that that is exactly how this works. Is once you find a medicine, it's just magically available to everyone on the planet. Uh, that's like how, the COVID vaccine. That's how the yeah. That's how the how the industry works. Um, that's never questioned in this movie, right? I mean, this is just presented as a, there's as a, a positive. There's a giant plot hole, which I don't. I was like. They have to fix this. Someone's going to put some plaster on this plot hole because there are these indigenous people who live and apparently grew, developed, engineered a thing called the tree of life. Right. And they, it is nearby. It's in the neighborhood. Right. And they, they, they've used it because it has amazing properties. They also understood or developed or engineered it to have amazing properties. However, we, we don't know that, although that would be a more, a more fascinating movie. Um, and, and then somehow they stop, right? They, they discontinue this use, right? Right. But some, someone in England said, oh, I'm going to go to a place I've never been, hire a person I've never seen, and go to this place and, and I'm going to find it, which is this astonishing thing because it just seemed plainly. You'd be like, that makes no sense. First of all, why don't they already know? And even if they didn't know, they know of it. So why couldn't they solve this, solve the, you know, the lost tree problem? And I was like, somehow they have to explain this. Like someone got hit in the head, it closed up, or it's just the arrow had left. So nobody can ever do this again, which is this astonishing thing. Like they created, also they created all this, I'm not sure if it's technology or magic, but someone once said, if technology is advanced enough, it looks like magic. So let's just call it technology. But they created all this technology to seal this, to make it so you can open it, to make it so you can do all these things. But they completely forgot how to use any of it, which nothing, just not explained. It's like, well, they're indigenous people, so you have to accept that they're dumb. (laughs) 
and, and they need someone to come from Europe to fix this. Right. But they once yeah. were smart. Well, this is one of the continuing tropes, right, that's often presented in media of indigenous people, right? You have them and they're they're trapped in time. They're locked in time. They often present native people, whether it's from South America or North America, uh, as people who are, are still really uh, tribal um, and they're seen as backwards they're seen as savages and in this movie they are trying to play it both ways and have them be kind of these headhunters and they're intimidating and they're frightening um, but all it's just a show that's just a show yeah I mean so in, on top of the the lost technology and knowledge uh, that they need the white person to come in and solve the puzzle it's a scene from the ride Frank is doing the riverboat you know he's telling the puns doing the jokes and then the characters in, uh, you know, in, with spears come out of the bushes and start throwing blow darts at the, you know, at the boat. And it's, it's, it's exactly that scene from the ride. Exactly. Except Frank gives him a wink. And so we know, oh, oh, so they're not really doing, they're not really attacking the boat. They're pretending to attack the boat to make the ride more exciting or the boat trip more exciting. It's, it, this is like the, like when the frat boy says, oh, it's just a joke. Like I don't, I don't really say the F right, word. Right. I really don't say the F word. I, it's just I just was saying it in a joke. So put an asterisk there, and everything right. that I just did before is totally okay. Right. I mean, they they want to have their cake and eat it too, right? They they want to have they want to play on these tropes about indigenous savages attacking, but they also know that they can't do that in this, you know, in two thousand twenty one, and they want to be seen as progressive because it turns out. That actually know the native people aren't cannibals and they aren't headhunters, uh, but you know there's a part in the movie where uh, the indigenous people capture uh, Frank and and Lily and McGregor and they take them to their yeah, Ewok village. You know, <laughs> they take them to their to their uh, tree house and they're you know they're covered in in like skull paint and they have feathers and spears and there's drums playing and, and the camera very deliberately pans over a giant pot of boiling stew, right? And so there, there's all of these uh, references to cannibalism uh, and to savagery. Uh, and we're, we're very much supposed to feel like that's what's happening. I mean, very deliberately. Uh, in fact, the, the Rock has a few um, lines which are puns about cannibalism. Right, he's got this joke where he says, "Like it's a terrible place to be headed." He's got a whole thing about how they're going to eat you and wear your eyeballs as a necklace, right? So they're playing up all this stuff, and and then it's a fake out because it turns out that no, they're just pretending to be cannibals. Next time, I'm going to charge you more for this booga booga nonsense. Sam, we had a deal, okay? You and know, it's not I'm booga- tired, and this is a whole production uh, with geez. these ridiculous costumes. Lily, listen, the truth is I didn't get a chance to call this entire thing off. Remember, it's only a scam if you fall for it. There, there is one piece about, about the, the, the ruse, the indigenous ruse, let's call it, the indigenous kidnapping ruse. It wasn't a ruse. Two-thirds of that, this is the lawyer in me, and I apologize, two-thirds <laughs> of that wasn't a ruse. If that thing happened in the real world, they did a very bad, criminal, violent thing to two of the people. Right? Because if someone shot you in the neck, tied you up, and carted you off somewhere, you would be horrified. You would be like, what that person did to me was a crime. And they're fine with that because they're friends. With, so this is the, 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 the faux scene where, where Frank has you know, um, everyone aboard his boat kidnapped 
in quotes, but it's not real because they're not really kidnapping them. But to but they were actually kidnapping those the people who didn't know. They did, you know, take them away, cart them off, and attack them. The thing that's problematic about that for me is they just did that because Frank asked them to. Right? Right. And and you know, let's just think among us. If someone said, Hey, I want you to play a trick on the people in my house, I want you to come in and poison dart all of them. And you're like, well, are they going to know? No, they're not going to know. And then I want you to tie them up and throw them in the trunk of your car and take them to your house. Any reasonable moral person would be like, that is a horrible thing. No human being who has any morals would do such a thing. I will not help you doing that. Right. And, but they do. We sort of miss that. And then as we've been discussing, saying like, oh, you know, it was fake, but it wasn't, I wasn't fake to them until, you know, the reveal happened. So I think that is an important thing to remember that these people just are this scenery that just does what they're told. They know Frank. So of course we will do this ridiculous, violent, (laughs) also performatively ultra stereotypical, you know, it's like go act out the worst stereotype. But I think that that's also a problem, right? Because there's the, you know, we can go to a million movies, but loyal um, Indian scouts in the United States, many, many, many stereotypes of that, that, you know, like Tonto, they, they just do what they're told. It's repulsive. It's a little meta there, but, but it, it still is, it would be a gross thing if any reasonable person asked another reasonable set of people to do that for a number of reasons. For me, it's really interesting to juxtapose how... Uh, with the indigenous people, it's not even a real tribe, right? It's this hodgepodge of indigeneity, right? Where, you know, if we if we look at the if we look at um, at one point, she's wearing this hat that looks kind of like the the, the bowler hats that a lot of uh, indigenous Bolivian women wear. Uh, is she supposed to be Bolivian? I don't. Th- I don't think so. They live in trees, right? <laughs> so uh, and so, you know, there's this confusion. It's not really linked to any one tribal group in South America, and yet the Spaniard, the Spaniard is a real historical figure, right? Lope de Aguirre is his name, uh, who is uh, very much like the like the Pirates of the Caribbean character of that conquistador and the cursed Aztec gold. Uh, and so we have this uh, Lope de Aguirre character who is similarly cursed uh, by the native people, by the, the indigenous leader. And so he's been tied uh, to the Amazon River. Can I uh, just just one piece there is um, I'm going to lie here. What I'm, what I'm about to say is not true. So there's a prequel to this movie. It's called Aguirre, The Wrath of God. Oh. And it's by <laughs> Werner Herzog. It's in German. This is not, um, like 1972. This is a very old Yeah, it's episode. not a prequel to this movie. But if you watch it in just in your mind, say that it's a prequel. Because Aguirre, The Wrath of God is an amazing movie about colonization, about the role of the church, even about the role of race. So um, what is it? For people who haven't seen it, what's this movie about? I mean, what's the so, plot? Uh, it's, it's about Aguirre. Right, it's about um, Pizarro's men who are going to go find. They're trying to find El Dorado, right? right? The lost city of gold. Because the only two things that anyone was ever looking for was a fountain <laughs> of youth and El Dorado, right? Um, and this, they had it. You know, it's not nice to go just look for gold anymore. So, twenty twenty one, you can't just. It can't be gold. So it's got to be, you know, healthcare. Um, so right, it's 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 the Avatar tree now. So 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 they they are these people who break away from. Uh, a group of Pizarro's men, and then they're going to go look for El Dorado. They don't have, they have a bunch of indigenous slaves with them and they, they go through the 
the jungle to try to find El Dorado. It obviously doesn't go very well in the movie. It doesn't go very well for them. And yeah, people should watch that. <laughs> well, you know, I, I haven't seen the Werner Herzog uh, movie myself, uh, but I, I do know about this, him as a historical figure. And, you know, it's one of the things that really aggravated me about this movie, where the indigenous people are kind of some blurry mix of tropes about indigenous people. We have a representation of like a real historical Spaniard uh, conquistador, and they've rehabilitated him, right? I mean, historically, he was a monster. Like, even the even the other conquistadors thought he was bad. He was so bad, right? I mean, he's just, he's like a monster among monsters. And yet, in this retelling, he wasn't trying to, to gain personal power and form, uh, fame and fortune. He was trying to get something that would save the life of his daughter. Right. They, right? They've changed the motivation for... For the entire, for, you know, for the conquest, right? Yeah, they have changed the motivation <laughs> for conquest from a quest for riches and power, which is what it was, uh, to a quest to save his daughter for for medicine again, right? And that's the reason that he's there. So we're sort of sympathetic to the to the old conquistadors, uh, and up until the point where they get they they lose their patience and then they kill a bunch of indigenous people, and then we're like, oh. Now oh, they're to, bad. To, we'll call that the genocide point for the movie. <laughs> the movie. Right, right. <laughs> and in the movie, the conquistadors are the villains. They are literal monsters. Yeah. But I think it's important to note, like Felicia's saying, that they changed their motivation. The whole mo- the motivation for being there in the first place, and that's the same thing is true for Lily's character. The reason that she's there is also the sort of benevolent science and medicine thing. Um. So Felicia was saying that the representation of the indigenous people. They're a hodgepodge of stereotypes, but they seem to exist also just to be killed, uh, both in the old conquest scenes, those sort of flashbacks, but also in in the 1916 you know version of the of events. And you just see uh, indigenous people who have no lines really dropping mm-hmm. like flies, right? And they don't know how to defend themselves, right? They're just kind of presented as this inept group of tree dwellers <laughs> that are getting picked off. And there's this one really interesting scene where we we have the brother McGregor, and he he's an interesting character who I'm sure we're going to talk about in, in just a few minutes. Um, but in the scene, he's taking out a collection of golf clubs. And he pulls out a driver and he says driver and he shows these uh, native people in the treehouse uh, how to <laughs> how to golf. <laughs> and so in the midst of this fight, a couple moments later in the film, uh, the indigenous people are dropping by, by flies. And the only one who was able to defend them in any sort of way was this one indigenous person who grabs the golf club and whacks the Spaniard with a with the golf club and then says driver. Uh, and we can see that the brother of our of our main character is being kind of like a white savior. He's taught them how to properly defend themselves with uh, with golf clubs, which they were unable to do with their own weapons. Um, so really, it's you know, kind of perpetuating this idea that they're just so far in the past that they can't even take care of themselves. And, and, and just going on that, it's like the, the ahistoricalness of what happens in this movie the you know the indigenous people are sort of just this side note that just didn't matter. I, can I rewrite the movie and make it about the indigenous people <laughs> who actually yes please <laughs> get to thrive and, and live and and use their resources uh, to actually save lives? I mean, it, it is interesting. I mean, they, they the indigenous people in this movie like they're trying to get 
the key, the heart, whatever it is, that opens up the tree, which they've forgotten about. But they but don't they actually even want it. completely because she can read the language. She can still read the language, right? So she can read the language, yeah. And she knows about the curse, right? She tells Emily Blunt, like, you have to run away from the river. So she has certain knowledge. She's not clueless. She knows plenty. She just doesn't know enough. Yeah, and, and why they decided to remove the, the character Trey or Sam completely from the rides, but they put them in the movie. They just changed their gender and make her the, you know, the, the, the leader of the tribe and kind of make her a good guy who helps them out in their quest a little bit, but who also has no interest in finding the tree or you know, getting the artifact back. Like she's just doing it because Frank wants it and she's going to give it to She's literally like the fifth most interested person in, in the tree of life. It's like <laughs> uh, um, Emily Blunt's character, Lily, um, Skipper, um, Frank, random Germans, <laughs> um, the people made up of honey and bees and bugs, um, the conquistadors who have been dead for 300 years, <laughs> and then the person who it belongs to. Right? The people who are like, cre- right. and I'm going to say even the people who created it, right? Or grew, or grew it. Right. And and they have no interest. They're, they're just like, oh, yeah, we don't care about this. And we're just here for a cameo. You know, um, you know, one of the things that is interesting to me is the way that, that this movie is being released after uh, movies like Moana and Coco were released, you know, which also play on indigenous traditions. But in a very different way. I mean, and so I think, you know, some people might say, well, okay, but what makes this different? You know, they're not the bad guys, really. They're just pretending to be the bad guys. And they're not cannibals, really. They're just pretending to be cannibals. So isn't that a good thing? And and how is that different from Moana or Coco or a movie like that? It's completely different from those movies. <laughs> I mean, you know, there are critiques that can be made. You know, I, I know there are some critiques of, of Coco. Um, but even still, they did some great work consulting with communities and um, with and trying to access uh, uh, historical knowledge and cultural knowledge for both of those movies. And I think that they ultimately did a, a good job. I'm much more attuned to, to the material going on in Coco. Uh, I think ultimately they did a good job with Coco. Uh, but that was trying to center a story about a family in, in Mexico. In this movie, that's not what they're trying to do. The indigenous people are part of the environment. And this is also another common movie trope is making them kind of indistinguishable from their natural environment. Uh, And the natural environment in this case, and we know it from the very beginning, uh, the rocks character, Frank, tells us that everything in the Amazon is trying to kill you, right? That the whole place is just dangerous. And so they're part of, of that kind of environment. Hey, hey, hands in the boat. Know this about the jungle. Everything that you see wants to kill you and can. Poison angel's trumpet, strychnos, curare, banana spider. Marauders, dead of fever for never finding the fountain of youth. Adventurers, stung by stingray, searching for cities of gold. Conquistadors cursed for slaughtering innocent natives. And I mean, this is another thing about this movie is that there's a twist in the in the middle, and the and the twist is that uh, Frank is actually a conquistador. Let's let's talk about the the layers of colonialism here, because I was just going to actually I would say specifically settler colonialism because I think it's a it's a different brand of your run of the mill colonialism because he's Frank is there right Frank lives there has been there longer than maybe you know in, in lifetimes longer than any single 
indigenous person, right? I think she asked him what he did, you know, over all these hundreds of years. And he's like, I built the town. <laughs> he's like, I know I built the entire town. Right, right. And then there's a little, you know, quick montage of him, not of him, but you just see the town being built, like in this sort of a hyperlapse or, you know, speeded up way. Like Carl says, th- there is uh, an element of settler colonialism, but the idea of having the hero of the movie or one of the, the two heroes of the movie be a conquistador, uh, like someone at Disney thought this was a good idea. Uh, <laughs> but he's a good conquistador, right? right? Just like uh, right. Aguirre, right? They're there to for good reasons. They're trying he, to yeah, save he, a He was there a for a girl. noble purpose. Uh, but then he just he, he was the one who was like, oh, I'm not cool with the killing. So, you know, I'm going to I'm going to be the good guy and just settle and colonize this area for hundreds of years uh, as the <laughs> benevolent, you know, benefactor of these people. Um, you know, it is is a kind of a baffling choice. Uh, and it, you know, it wouldn't work except that the rock is so damn likable, <laughs> you know? I mean, Emily Blunt is too. Like the whole cast really. I mean, they are they are so likable and charming. If it had been any other actor, it might have been. And I was going to say that in my, in my pro rock statement here, um, <laughs> I, I'll give it admission. I've seen all of the Fast and Furious movies. Oh my goodness! All, all ten of them. I've seen all of them, um, and um, and that's side. Um, but separately, The Rock has done things. I mean, and this is of celebrity appearances and things in a a certain kind of limited way. Is is supportive of indigenous people's rights. Um, specific and very, very certainly of, of you know Pacific Islanders' rights, certainly because of his background, I think, and has shown up at places, right? I think Hawaii, when people were fighting against um, building the thirty-meter telescope in, in on Mauna Kea, I, I just wanted to mention that, and that's not to you know let him off the hook or say he should be more responsible than he is, but we should all be responsible for our politic. So we have what is essentially the Disneyification of colonialism. Disneyfication is is creating an, an illusion uh, of something real, sort of a simulation of something real, but in a way that makes uh, audiences, especially white audiences, comfortable. Uh, you know, it might be stereotypically scary in places, but ultimately, it's 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 designed as an adventure for uh, white people to imagine vicariously, uh, and that's that's what Disney does with a bunch of these things. They didn't change that here. Um, it is still a, a movie that centers the white characters or the, the European characters, at least. And so I, I think that process of having it both ways, trying to have it both ways, of the writers trying to say, well, we want to play on this nostalgia for sort of colonial adventurism, but we also want to get progressive points for doing it in a way that that is self-aware and sort of lampshades the the more racist elements of this. And I think you can see the writers trying to have it both ways in some of the other characters in the way that they present uh, McGregor, who is uh, billed as Disney's you know first gay character. But they also tried to make a big deal out of LeFou being their first gay character in the live action Beauty and the Beast. And they also tried to make a big deal out of, out of the character of Artie in Cruella being the first gay character. Uh, and then there was a, a blink and you miss it character in Onward. Uh, there was like a kiss in the background of one of the Star Wars, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. They, they're never committing. Can, can, I just wanted to say something about this being, I'm making Cody Marks a gay character, because it's, it's this othering, right? And 
he really, all we know from the movie is he's not a person who likes, there's some comment about like a woman and he's like, oh, that's not like, I, what is the quote he says? The, the line is, my interests lie elsewhere. That. That's it. So all we, so he just others, he says like, not that, right? So exactly cake and eat it too. Like, they're just like, we're not going to tell you and we're not going to say anything. But also I think we were making assumptions that means that that means he's gay. Right. Which I think is an interesting thing. Right. Um, I think it's a fair assumption. I think that's, that's what they wanted to do, but it's also, ain't nobody said that. Right. 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 They're they're not willing to say it, but they let you know through later jokes that were really quite offensive. (laughs) The gay jokes. Right. Disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a they let you know that he's gay through gay jokes, but his actual dialogue, he doesn't say it. And this is Disney hedging, right? This is this is them trying to play both sides again. You know, there's a huge market in China, and they want to make sure that you could watch this movie, you could just not get it, right? I mean, that, they they want that. That's you know, the the fact that it's ambiguous is on purpose. They want to get the points about how this is a great representation and their first LGBT character. But they don't want to actually have the character be gay in the movie. And so the way that, like Felicia said, the way that we know this character is gay in the movie is because they make jokes about him constantly. And specifically, they make jokes about how effeminate he is. Right? This is a sort of a running gag that he's effeminate and that he's cowardly and that he, uh, he likes sort of frivolous, fancy things. Right, and so it's really the stereotype of of what's called a dandy character in in fiction. I think that's actually the chi- the China part of that's really fascinating because you, in, you could watch that and just think, oh, he's just a really wealthy, lazy Western. I was just going to say American, but a wealthy, lazy Westerner, right? And because he has all of this luggage, he dresses really fancy, and you know, in the middle of a jungle cruise, and he brings his golf clubs and. You could be like the the reason he's not a superhero in this is because he's you know the idol class. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- there's a sort of bizarre thing that they do in this movie where, in a lot of adventure films, you have a, a rugged adventurer, whether it's you know Humphrey Bogart or Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones or whatever, and then you have this woman coming along. I think of like uh, Temple of Doom, where you had the Willie Scott character sort of being drug along on the adventure, and she doesn't want to be there, and she's not fit for the jungle. You know, she's constantly complaining and she doesn't have the fancy things that she's accustomed to. And and so you get, the audience gets all of these sort of, they identify with the Harrison Ford character in that because he's rolling his eyes and making jokes about her and putting her down because, you know, she's not rugged enough to handle it. And that trope has been around forever. And so they they redo that trope. They just reproduce it in this movie, except instead of making jokes about her, they make jokes about the gay character who's ostensibly gay character. And so that, that scene where they've hired Frank, they've hired his boat, he's going to take him down the, down the river into the heart of the Amazon. And here comes uh, all these porters and they have all this luggage, like way too much luggage. This is, this, is a, this is the classic too much luggage joke. Frank says to Lily, you can't take this. What are you doing? And she's like, oh, it's not mine. It's his. And she points to her brother. And then the, the, the rock does his like, oh, well, you don't need this. And he throws it overboard and you don't need this and you don't need this. These are my tennis rackets. It's a river cruise. Assorted day wear and shoes? No. Light reading and bathing costumes? Good. It's that same exact joke that we have seen hundreds of times in media, except instead of making fun of the woman, they're making fun of the gay guy. I sort of like that. It's like they really split 
the the traditional woman character into two people and said, okay, well, make all the sexist jokes, but point them at him so we can act like we're not sexist and we can make him gay because, and then we're heroes. Right, right, 100%. While they're also highlighting how feminist Emily Blunt's character is by always wearing pants, right? That it becomes her name within the movie just to highlight the fact that she's so progressive that she's defying the, you know, the norm of wearing skirts and dresses and is wearing pants like a man. Uh, so we get that kind of, they kind of do a gender flip on us, right? But it's also really regressive in a lot of ways about the way it presents femininity, about the way it presents gender uh, and sexuality. I was going to just add this, this one scene that I think is very telling of that, the the, the faux women, like girl power, I think is the you know, term that people would use yeah. in media. Girl boss. So she does this thing where she's like fighting off all these guys and it's like amazing. You're like, whoa, girl power, go, right? And she's like running. Then she jumps up on the roof and she's running across this sort of this shingled roof. And The Rock is like, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And ultimately, he turns out to be right. To I, I would say to the, you know, thrilling adulation of every, you know, dad guy watching this movie guy turns out to be right and has to come in and save her even though she like kind of kicked butt for like 75 or 80 percent of it and that happens like that kind of scenario happens like five or six times in the movie where she's like a badass but not quite enough right not quite enough big huge rock guy has to come in and actually really save you um because even the very first scene right the very first scene where she's trying to get the the MacGuffin, right? The thing that she <laughs> the artifact, to solve the, movie. the artifact, <laughs> right? The artifact, and, and um, so she, so she 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 you know uh, reappropriates it from the people who stole it. <laughs> she re-steals it, and everything works. Everything works, and then ultimately she's you know falling out of a window, and she needs someone to save her, right? Because they were just like, yeah, we can't actually have. It's just not possible to have a woman <laughs> who can address her problem and solve it singularly by herself. Yeah, and, and if you contrast that with The Rock, Frank is a superhero. He can't die. He can't be hurt. Like he is effectively a superhero and has no flaws, but she can't swim. Like that, that's her Achilles heel. Suddenly you have this, this character who's capable in every way, but the funny thing is, oh, she can't swim. So she needs him to help her whenever she gets near water. Which is where the whole movie um, takes place. <laughs> <laughs> Again, they sort of want to have their cake and eat it too, right? They want to have the feminism points for having this badass female character, but they also, you know, have to have Rock do some saving. No, 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 no Frank, 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 please! Listen. I cannot swim, Frank. That is not something I can do. You've never tried. About trying. You don't Frank, have to swim. I'll do all the swimming. Fear. It's not. Listen, I can't, Frank. Look, please. I can't do this without you. I need you. You have to trust me. The way that they present masculinity in this movie, I think, is worth talking about. I think it ties into all of this because. While we're constantly getting jokes about how effeminate and unprepared and cowardly the McGregor character is, um, we are simultaneously seeing Frank as a as a hyper masculine guy who is capable in every respect. He's really good at at fighting, especially. And then the joke, the juxtaposition is that McGregor, who is a, too effeminate to be effective in fighting, and so you you get another gendered joke when he. You know, tries to fight the bad guy and he can't. Like he hits the the bad guy, and nothing happens because he's too weak and you know to to do any damage. And so he then like kind of has this moment where he decides I'm going to kick him in the groin, 
right? And so you have this the classic trope again of, of of the woman who's not good at fighting, you know, getting the better of the bad guy by kicking him in the groin, right? That that's the that's the trope, and they give it to McGregor in this one. And then there's a you know there's a there's a scene where he pees his pants, right? And that's supposed to be really funny because he's such a coward that he pees his pants. I mean, you just get these. These that, the worst one, though, is when uh, Frank has the the sword stuck in him, right? And then they are pulling out all those. Uh, you know, do do you want to do you want to bite down on McGregor's stick? Is that what they were saying? Right. Yeah. And it's uh, oh, it's awful. So let's just back up a second. Before that scene happens, we have this sort of sort of foe coming out scene, which Carl mentioned, and within that scene, Frank's reaction is is. Good. I mean, he says, cool. He has no issue with it, apparently. That's a nice moment. I mean, that's fine. And then, but then later, a few scenes later, Frank has a sword stuck in him and it needs to be pulled out. And it's presented as an opportunity to make a series of gay jokes, just one after the other, out of nowhere. Uh, Se- gay sex jokes. Gay sex jokes. Gay yeah. sex so, jokes specifically. You know, it's it's going to hurt, and so and so. There's this joke about how do you want to bite down on McGregor's stick, and he's like, no, 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 just pull it out. And then McGregor's like, well, do you want me to? Uh, I can maybe pop around to the back, you know, and and like fiddle with it a bit or something like. There's wiggle with it from the back. I think. Yeah, like yeah. So it's it's. And he's like, no, no, definitely not, definitely. Right. He not. has this like gay panic moment all of a sudden, right? <laughs> and it's uh it's it ruined the previous moment. <laughs> yeah, it's very clearly this homophobic gay panic moment with all this sexual innuendo and and if this is their first gay character, quote unquote, Disney's first gay character, what are they doing? Why is, why are there gay jokes? This is a very specific like dialing down to the core of the homophobia here, right? With with gay panic. Also, I just can I just say one thing. It's also like who is seeing this movie and who are they bringing? Like, what is the age group and what is the, right. like, who, who is this joke for? And the antics, you're in there like, Daddy, what did it mean about writing down in the stick? Like, you laughed. Like, well, who, that's, I just was watching and I was like, isn't this like kind of like a family movie? It's 100% a family movie. <laughs> so why? So like, that's, it's just weird. This this joke is like one of those things where they put in a family film, for you know, a joke for the parents, sort of innuendo joke for the parents. And the joke is a homophobic joke. Like, it, it it boggles the mind that this is in there to me, and that Disney has the audacity to say to want points for making a gay character that they won't even say is gay, and they're making homophobic jokes about the whole time. It it's baffling. I agree. I completely agree. Yes. I mean, it's it's more that the character is is here. It's a walking target, right? It's like Target has walked on. Ah, yes. Now we can shoot jokes at this thing. Because almost in almost every way, there are a few moments that aren't, but but really, like if you look at that, you know, the the let's call it the coming out moment, I, you could easily argue that that's just a setup for what comes for what comes later, right? But I also think since they're all jokes of innuendo and they're all uh, the coming out, the so-called yeah. coming out scene is also very much uh, filled with innuendo and nothing is direct. They're, they'd be very easy to translate away. They don't ex- even exist anymore. Not the jokes, not the coming out. It's gone. It's already prepared to translate uh, for a Chinese audience, or or any, or any audience, audience yeah. who might be yeah any audience who might be opposed to uh, viewing. Uh, well, and, I mean, <laughs> gay I representations. This is part of a larger 
pattern where Disney knows that a good chunk of their audience is going to be conservative, uh, have uh, regressive ideas about about sexuality, and they don't want to lose those people. And so they kind of want to do, again, both things, right? They want to have a character be gay, ostensibly, but they also want don't want to lose any of the people who would be who would like you know boycott the film or any sort of religious backlash, and so they're going to throw in the in the jokes about that character, essentially make it a joke to uh, to satisfy both audiences looking for both the progressive and the regressive representation, and, and yeah, you know, when we see that throughout, I mean, I, I do think that it's interesting the way that they McGregor is the spoiled character who's a coward throughout the entire movie because he's not good at fighting. But at the end, they, they do turn him into a hero. And I think the, the way that they do that also says a lot about masculinity, about the way this movie understands masculinity. Because at the very end, he learns how to throw a punch. And that's what makes him a hero. So you know he, he's, he's in this- Beautiful character. Yeah. He's in this, he's in this standoff with the, with, the, with the German prince character, the villain. And he finally you know, connects with a good punch- Right, and it knocks him back, and he wins the fight. And then you know a big rock falls on the, it falls on the bad guy, and he has the Disney death thing. McGregor becomes a hero. He has value because he's learned how to fight. Because nothing else that he could bring to the table is is, is shown as useful. In fact, everything about him uh, is considered to be a, a detriment to the adventure. Right? It's his like, deep love, his deep love, loyalty, and caring for his sister right. throughout his entire life. Right. It's just kind of meh. It's in the way. Right. I mean, yeah. And I think they're saying a lot here about what's valued in masculinity, even in a character who is coded as gay. Is they're saying, well, you can't be effeminate and still be a hero. You have to learn to do what The Rock does in these movies. Right? You have to take on these sort of hyper-masculine values. You have to learn how to fight. You have to learn how to, how to be physically violent and intimidating. That's how you're going to get confidence. Because you know, he gains confidence through that act of, of, of punching the guy in the face. And at the end, he's giving that speech again in, the, in front of the stuffy academics back in London. And he doesn't need the cards and he doesn't mess it up you know, because he's gained his confidence now. And he's a, you know, he's, he no longer has the sort, of, the sort of characterization as being overly effeminate. There's a there's a value set that they've placed on that that I think is very troubling. I think that is correct, and I think and he also he sticks it to them in the end. I can't remember the quote, but he sticks it to the the stuffy academic the as- association. Yeah, and he's like, I'm, we're going to go to you know academy number two because obviously academy number two, as all academics know, is always going to be so much better. And it's going to be very progressive, filled with women <laughs> right. and people who come. Just it's going to be great. Walk yeah. down the street to the other the other big old building. <laughs> um but he but but in in the same thing is like he sticks it to the to the sticks it to the man in the end. And that's I think in, in some sense the the other thing of masculinity. It's like any man that's ever been cut off and felt their masculinity rise um in road rage it's sort of that he you know he's like you said that to me before but i'm going to get you back for what you did to me and my sister and then you know storms off well and and right. there's there, there's right. a scene where he gets a accidentally gets a tattoo right and and, and he's he's very vain and 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 cares about how he looks and that's considered to be a joke right but once he accepts the tattoo as being this messy thing that kind of makes him more rugged and he's no longer concerned about how he looks. And so that also sort of propels him towards heroism 
all of this stuff is reinforcing one particular type of hypermasculinity. Yes. Um, even for characters who happen to be gay. Okay, so we've covered a lot. What should Disney do? Um, you know, I, I think that they should retire this stuff, uh, but I think that there are going to be people who ask a question sincerely that what do you do with all of these rides and these old movies and the IP that Disney keeps trying to rehabilitate and resuscitate and bring into sort of the modern era? Is there a way to make these stories, these sort of adventure stories, in a way that isn't inherently racist or colonialist? Like, is that even possible and should they try? How could you tell a story that is that? I mean, I think there are a lot of ways to tell a story that is that, right? You know, I don't know where the next Jungle Cruise is. The, obviously, the sequel is going to be, they're going to have to do one for each area, each major river. <laughs> you could make people of that land. I mean, we could talk about what the word indigenous means, but people who are indigenous to the, to the land where the, that thing is happening, um, they, could be the, they could be not scenery. They could be the people who are the main characters. They're the, the stories of those people, which, you know, I don't know. There are probably 100,000 stories of that. You know, across the world, and they're probably all, you know, quite fascinating. You could retell this story. You could retell this story in this locale about the story. You know, if you wanted to make it there, of you know what happened to you know Aguirre's men, right, and how you know they were going to kill people and they were going to find the city of gold and they didn't, and people stopped them, and those people lived and thrived. That would be an awesome story. I'm going to write that. I want to write that right now. Well, I mean, Disney's made Moana, so they know how to make movies. They know how to make stories that are completely devoid of white people and completely telling indigenous stories. So they know how to do it. Uh, it's just not what they like to do most of the time. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine a and sort of Indiana Jones in reverse story, right? Where you have the indigenous people. This stuff concerned. in the museum belongs in the indigenous community. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I got that. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. so, so it's like Tomb Raider, Indiana Jones, but it's Museum Raider. Right. Yeah. They go in the museums <laughs> and they steal. I was going to say steal. They don't steal. They repatriate right. all of their shit. It's it's essentially the 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 Killmonger story, except he's the hero and the good guy. Uh, in in the movie, right? I mean, you could have a story where you know indigenous people go and reclaim the stuff that's been stolen from all over the world uh, in colonialism. Wow, wow, you could have that. Could be a really, really, really long series. Yeah, I mean, you could, you could have a hundred different films in that franchise. We can definitely write this. And with that, it's time to bring this case to a close. Please remember, all of our pop culture detective media projects are one hundred percent funded by viewers and listeners like you. So if you enjoy the kind of in-depth media criticism you just heard, please consider going over to Patreon and supporting our work over there. Just go to patreon.com backslash popdetective. As always, you can keep up to date with all of our projects on Twitter at popdetective and find all of our long-form video essays on the Pop Culture Detective YouTube channel. We'll be back again very soon with another audiophile investigation, so please remember to follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And I hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks for listening.